First things first is a proverb that all of us, I'm sure, are accustomed to hearing and perhaps using. And it means to get your priorities right, to put things in the right order. And putting first things first really matters. Stephen Covey wrote a a best-selling book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I never read it. It's where I went wrong. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. But number three, I'm surprised it wasn't number one, but number three is put first things first. Last week we had Eddie and Bobby that some of you will know painting a couple of rooms at the vicarage. And... uh, they clearly showed that they operated on the basis of first things first. Started with a coffee and a fag, and then first moved the furniture, and second laid down the dust sheets, and third rubbed down the surfaces, and fourth a tea break, and fifth fill in the uneven parts of plaster, and sixth and then put an undercoat, and seventh, and have another fag break, and then eight, paint, nine, let the paint dry, ten, paint it again, and so on. It was brilliant. I was so impressed watching them for a week, painting, putting things in order. And if any of those had, had gone wrong and been out of order and out of sync, you know, then what would have been left in our front room would have been a mess. You've got to put first things first. I'm a West Countryman, as some of you know, and we love scones and clotted cream. Now, it doesn't matter whether it's called scones or scones. I really don't care. That's not the big issue. The big issue is what goes on first. And do you put on first the jam or do you put on first the cream? Interestingly, in Cornwall, it's always jam first and in Devon, it's always cream first. But I think you need butter in there as well. (laughs) So I think a layer of butter allows the jam to just sit right. And then on goes the clotted cream. First things first. In politics, we've heard the slogan, America first or Britain first. And that's just nationalism. There's a popular Instagram meme that says, put yourself first. That's just narcissism. In fact, there's a song by the American pop band, The Neon Trees. Any fans? Come on, I'm 56 and I've heard of them. One of their lyrics in one of their songs says this, you're never going to get everything you want in this world. First things first, get what you deserve. It's kind of a meme for our culture today. You're not going to get everything you want. First things first. Get what you deserve. But Christianity flips that. And Christianity says it's not nation first, it's not Britain first, it's not America first, it's the kingdom first. And it's not you first, and it's not get what you deserve first, it's give God what he deserves first. And so the first thing then this evening is this, that the heart of Christian discipleship, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is that it's putting Jesus first. If you want to know what it's all about, 
it can be reduced to that. That he comes first. Jesus first. First things first. Last Sunday evening, Mark preached a great sermon on of Luke 9.23 earlier on in this chapter. If anyone would come after me and be my follower, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And Mark explained that to be a follower of Jesus involves self-sacrifice and self-denial and of great cost and of actually carrying our own cross. And these are sort of anathema themes in modern culture. Who talks like that today? Well, Jesus does. If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and die daily, he says elsewhere. And there's no comfortable cross. There's no velvet padded seats on a cross. I love the fact that Jesus never employed a kind of cheap sales ploy. With the Lord Jesus, there's never any sense where it's bait and switch. That it's all, oh, follow me, it's going to be absolutely wonderful. I'll meet every need that you've got. And then he turns it once you sign on the dotted line. He's just honest about the cost and the requirement and the demands of discipleship up front. He respects us too much to flannel us. And so he tells us, count the cost and carry your cross. He tells us that small is the gate and narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. You see, we do people a, a disservice if we peddle a kind of crossless, painless, easy, everything's going to be tickety-boo sort of Christianity. When I was a kid growing up in Somerset, I, all I wanted was to join the army. I just thought it would be absolutely brilliant. I wanted to be a guardsman outside Bucky Palace, in red, with a great big hat, looking cool, with the queen walking by and waving at me. I thought, this is the thing for me. And I was rubbish at school. And so as soon as I could, I joined the army. Age 15 and two months, I went to the recruiting office. And all the adverts that were there, I remember they were about adventure and learning new skills and being cool and being attractive and visiting other countries and going skiing and things like that. I thought, this is for me. There was nothing in the adverts about being shouted at or being shot at. Not, nothing in the adverts. Display. And I remember it was a real surprise turning up and these people shouting at me. I thought, chill, you know. <laughs> I didn't last very long. 150 years ago, the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard confronted the institutional church about the tone of her mission. And he said this, for long the tactics have been use every means to move as many as you can to enter Christianity. Don't be too curious whether what they enter is Christianity. And then he says, my tactics have been with God's help to use every means to make it clear 
what the demand of Christianity is. And that demand is Jesus first. First and foremost. First and last. Secondly, Jesus first confronts us then with a crisis, with a challenge. Will I or won't I put Jesus first, which is costly? Luke tells us, let's look at this passage, that three people all appear to want to follow Jesus. They want to be his disciples, but each one hesitates and holds back when push comes to shove. Person number one in verse 57, Jesus walking along, and the person number one says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, oh, okay. Well, just so that you know, foxes have dens and the birds in the sky have nests, but the Son of Man's got nowhere to lay his head. Just so you know, there is a cost to following Jesus. Now, at first glance, that seems a rather strange reply of Jesus, a, a rather odd response. It, it's somewhat brusque. Surely he could say, oh, mate. Well, we don't know who's a man or Oh, that's just a beautiful thing. Thank you so much for affirming me in my ministry. And thank you so much for identifying yourself with me and wanting to accompany me. I really appreciate you really don't need to, but thank you. Jesus just tells it straight and lays it on pretty thick. He, he isn't just warmly welcoming them. He's being honest about the hurdles and the hardships that await following him. The road is long and tough and there are no five-star stops on the way. And going with Jesus means hardship and following him means going to Calvary. Why did Jesus say this? Well, he said it because it was true. And they might have been all starry-eyed and gooey-eyed and feeling good and there with the crowds and isn't this amazing and I just want to be with Jesus right front and center with him. But they need to understand that following him costs. And I wonder if perhaps Jesus had a kind of spiritual intuition he often had them. He knew he could read people. And maybe he knew that this person liked their bed. And they liked waking up with a cup of tea. And following Jesus in for the faint-hearted and for those who love their feather pillows. Jim Packer, some of you have heard of, Professor Packer, was a, a great church leader, one of the greatest in our tradition and evangelical Protestantism in the second half of the 20th century and into the 21st century. Went to be with the Lord not that long ago. He was a remarkable man in so many ways and uh, produced many books and produced uh, some of the best-selling Christian books and also was editor-in-chief of the ESV Bible translation that many of us use. An amazing man. I remember hearing him preach in this church. He said this, Jesus has no interest in gathering vast crowds of professed adherents who melt away as soon as they find out what following Jesus 
actually demands of them. Jesus says we've got to count the cost. The amazing thing about Packer, and I just happened to think about this this afternoon, so I googled it. It must have been the Lord. I, well, I think it was the Lord. 77 years ago today, Jim Packer came up as a student to Oxford, and it was the Sunday of third week today in Michaelmas term. 77 years ago today, came as a student. He'd been to college chapel. He'd been to college supper. And then he turned up here. We had a service in the war, 1944. And it was blackout and it happened at 8.15. We still have an 8.15 service. And he came and he heard a preacher up here telling him about the cost of following Jesus. And he said he realized that even though he'd been brought up religious and brought up going to church he had always been on the outside looking in it had never been personal never he'd never owned it it wasn't his faith and he realized that he had to own it for himself he was confronted with a challenge will i or won't i follow jesus and the preacher at the end gave an opportunity for him to do so like we will today like we do every sunday and he responded and gave his life to the Lord. He became one of the great leaders of the church of his generation. And he came to faith here. And as I read that this afternoon and realized it was 77 years to the day, to the evening in this place, I wondered if there was someone here who has been brought up going to church. They've heard a thousand sermons. They've sung the songs. They've been around all things religious. They may even have been on teams in their home church or whatever. Their dad may well be a vicar. They've heard it all. They could give some of it. But they've never for themselves. Maybe you have never personally said yes to Jesus. Well, tonight's the night to do that. And then in verse 59 to 62, the second, we've got the second and third persons. And Jesus invites them to follow him. And both appear to want to be around him, but they don't want to commit to him. Both hesitate, both pro procrastinate, both are interested, but choose not to be wholly invested. And one chap says, I'll follow you, but first. That's what it says. Look at the text. But first, let me bury my father. Now, we don't know whether his father is about to die or has just died. I think we can reasonably infer that his father is not about to die and hasn't or hasn't just died. Otherwise, Jesus' answer would have been, of course, do the right thing on your father and your mother. Go and bury them. But instead, Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. It would seem that this is just a kind of smokescreen. I'd like to, but sorry, dad needs me first. But first, not you, but first, me. I will follow you on my terms. The second chap says, I'll follow you but first, let me go home and say goodbye to my family. Again, that seems very reasonable, but he doesn't say for how long. Jesus senses, I think, again, this is a delay tactic. It's just smoke. 
And he says, listen, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because if, if it's about plowing and you're looking back, you're not going to plow a straight line. There was something curveball about his comment. And he was wanting to follow Jesus, but also with an eye on the world and himself. On his terms, but first. Twice there in the text, it says, but first, but first. Both of them offer to follow Jesus, but only on their terms and in their time. Jesus said, that isn't how it works. Not but first, me first. And I think often in the Christian life, we can be a bit like a kind of spiritual Vicky Pollard. Yeah, but no, but yeah, but no. Or, Or whatever. Yeah, but no, but yeah, but no kind of hokey-cokey Christians, you know? One foot in, one foot out, in, out, in, out, in. We like it on a Sunday, not so much on a Monday. But first actually means me first. It means not you first. And how often do we do that? I know I do. But Jesus doesn't work for us. And Jesus doesn't lower the bar and he doesn't make any exception and he doesn't dilute the cost. He doesn't say, oh, go on then and come back and we can renegotiate terms. Just three days a week will do. You know, there's no indication in the text that any of them agreed to follow Jesus. And I think the gospel writers are so honest and, the, in, in, and this little cameo is so interesting that had those people decided to follow Jesus, it would have said, and so they follow Jesus, as it often does. But for them, he didn't. It's just silence. And in that silence, but, but first, they fall into it. Thirdly, will you put Jesus first? I mean, objectively, he is the first. He's the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. We're called to um, make him our first love. So is he? Is he first in your life? Is he first in my life? I guess for me, the truthful answer is sometimes. I'm preaching to myself tonight. I've been a Christian 35 years. And in that time, I've known many friends who I once, as it were, walked with and went with up, to, up the hill of the Lord and enjoyed church with and went on mission with and was involved in ministry with and studied the Bible with and prayed with and shared the faith with. And they were just brothers in arms, but they're no longer there. And they've given up on Christianity and they've given up on church because they've given up on Christ because in every case and there's so many of them there's just too many of them they put themselves first and I know I was involved in many many of the the decisions that they finally came to in the discussions around around those not one former friend or friend who was formerly involved in the church who no longer is has left the church I can't think of one who left the church because they have genuine intellectual issues and questions and problems with the faith 
None of them have lost their faith. They simply don't want to be involved anymore because they put themselves first before the Lord. And so it's not a one-off decision. And we are confronted time and time again in our Christian life. Who will I put first? In fact, we're confronted every day with this question. Me first or the first? Who's it going to be? And often our comfort or our lifestyle or our relationships or what's burning in us comes before the word and the will and the way of the Lord. At the same time, I've known some truly remarkable people who at great cost put him first. I have a friend called Elliot Tepper and he's one of the most inspiring men I know. He was brought up the son of very wealthy in New York, the son of a very wealthy New York Jewish banker. Privileged education, just an all-star guy, you know, national wrestling champion, went to an undergrad, brilliant scholar, went on to do an MBA at Harvard. It was in the 70s. He became a bit of a hippie whilst also working hard at his studies and uh, got involved in some of the drug stuff and dropped some LSD. And when he dropped the LSD, he had a vision. He had a vision of heaven and he had a vision of hell. And when he came out of, of uh, the, the trip, he realized there was a decision that confronted him. Who will I follow? Which do I choose? Either or. He chose to follow Jesus. He finished his MBA, but by that time his father had written him out of the family, written him out of the will, didn't talk to him again for many decades. In fact, not that long ago before his father passed away. But following Jesus, he's been a remarkable man. He started a ministry for drug addicts, a rehab ministry called Betel. Some of you may have heard of it. And it's in dozens of countries all around the world. It's seen tens of thousands of people rescued from slavery, set free and made whole. The Lord blessed him when he followed the Lord, but it was at a personal cost. Putting Jesus first would always present a challenge, a crisis, and a cost. But it's worth it. It's worth it for what we will get from the Lord. It's worth it for what the Lord will achieve through us. It's costly, but worth it. C.S. Lewis, brilliant Oxford Don and famous writer of the Narnia and other things, he said this, Jesus claims all because he is love and must bless us. And he cannot bless us unless he has us. And when we try to keep within us an area of our own, we try to keep an area of death. And therefore, in love, he claims all. He must bless us. He wants to love us, but he can only bless that which is given to him. And in love, he claims all. Why? Not because he, he's a dictator, but because he wants to pour his love into us. Let me finish. 
We've got to put first things first. And as Christians, that means putting Jesus first. But here's the thing. Jesus put you first. Jesus put you first. And he didn't ask of these three would-be followers anything that he wasn't prepared to pay himself. The first person wanted comfort. Jesus says, the, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, just so you know. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There is discomfort ahead for Jesus. But why? Because Jesus was putting us first. And for our sakes, Jesus leaves unimaginable glory and splendor. And he exchanges heaven's throne for an animal trough. And he leaves being the crown prince of heaven, ruling over myriad and myriad of angels. And he gives it up to be born like one of us like a servant and he's born straight away in, into a family into a farmhouse and then he's on the run as a refugee for several years because the king's breathing threats and when he returns he goes to Nazareth there was a saying can anything good come out of Nazareth it meant no it is the armpit of Israel and Israel's the armpit of of the Roman Empire that's what they thought and that's where Jesus grew up and he gives up comfort for us. There's no comfort in betrayal, and there's no comfort in a cruel cross, and there's no comfort in the cold stone tomb, and Jesus took it all for us. Why? He put us first. And then Jesus put us before, as it were, his relationship with his father. The guy says, I, I gotta go and you know, be with my dad. Jesus for us and for our sake was willing to be separated from his father. And there at the cross, he who knew no sin becomes sin for us. God lays on him the iniquity of us all. And as representative humanity, he takes the punishment for sin on and in himself and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is a mystery. I don't understand it. But somehow that beautiful, eternal, intimate relationship of the Father and the Son is breached. And it's breached in order for the breach between us and God to be closed. Jesus put us first before his Father, although his Father was at work in it and so on. And then Jesus put us first above all else by giving up his life for us. He put you above all else. And so when he says to us, you put me first, he's saying it from the position and from the place with the evidence that he put us first. How will we respond? There's a great old hymn, the school assembly classic, be thou my vision. Remember it? Riches I need not, nor vain empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, the first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. Put Jesus first. Jesus put 
you first.